We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26. We're going to finish our study of of chapter 14 uh, this morning. Scripture begins in Genesis by presenting a dilemma to us all. In beginning, God. That's the dilemma. Every human being has to decide what they're going to do with that statement. In beginning, God. The the isn't there. It's just in beginning, God. God always was. He always will be. He's the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. And in beginning, God. What do you do with that? Is there a God? Or are we all here by some type of amazing impossible, random chance. Now, if we say, yes, there is a God, then comes our next dilemma. In the beginning, God, what? Created. Did this God create the heavens and the earth and everything in it? Am I here with purpose and meaning and value? Or again, is God just a distant God who set everything in motion and then stepped back and said, good luck with it all? In beginning, God created. See, depending on how you answer that question, you'll have a very different view of what comes next. And if we are here as born-again believers, followers of Jesus Christ, and we say, yes, in beginning, God created. He created the heavens and the earth, and he created man and woman. We have to start with that framework as we approach a very difficult uh, section of verses in chapters 26 through 40. So just keep that in the back of your mind, because the next question is, If God created the heavens and the earth and everything that's in it, what did he say after? It is good. Is God's design for humanity good? Let's pray. Lord, we know you are a good God. And those words fail to even begin to capture the depths of your love and your goodness and your righteousness and your purity. Lord, you didn't have to reveal your truth to us. But you desire for us to understand. As Paul encourages us, don't be ignorant. So this morning, we're here to learn and not just learn to grow our own uh, uh, knowledge base so that we can prove that we are uh, smarter or, or more intelligent than the person next to us. We've been learning that you reveal yourself so that we may be a blessing to others and build one, another's, uh, one another up. So Lord, thank you for making your home in us. Thank you for saving us from our sin. Thank you for for bringing us from death into life and eternal life and giving us the gift of your Holy Spirit to now go out and make Jesus known through both word and deed. Teach us to love you and to love one another through a love that can only come from you, a self-sacrificial, self-denying kind of love. 
work through your word. Lord, I pray for every church that's gathering this morning under your name. I pray that the truth would be proclaimed boldly and clearly and people would hear the message of salvation through Jesus Christ and they would respond. And today would be the day of salvation. Lord, we love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. So Paul, again, I know you've heard this a hundred times, we're in chapter 14 at this point, but Paul is putting the house of God back in order, order in Corinth. Things were out of order, they were selfish, they were gathering together to meet their own needs, and Paul has made it expressly clear that they were to gather to meet the needs of one another. And he goes after the root of the problem in chapter 14. He says in 1 Corinthians 14, 1, the reason you should come together, you should pursue what? Love. Don't come into church chasing after getting your own needs met or don't come in with an agenda, don't come in with a desire to make your name known, pursue love, chase after love, hunt love down. That's why you gather together. And he says, also desire spiritual, now we add the word gifts there, but he really just means spirituals. Come together, pursue love, and desire the spirit of God to work in your midst through you, through the gifts that he has given you. Come together and allow the spirit to work for the edification, the building up of the body of Christ. And then he says, but especially in the midst of that, one of the most important gifts or one of the most important things that the spirit desires to do through you is what? Prophesy. Inspired speech, God's word in God's place in God's time. That should be the language of the church. When love and prophecy meet, the church is built up. The church is edified. So we are to pursue love, pursue the spirit moving among us, especially that we may share the heart and mind of Christ with others and then the body of Christ will be built up. He went on to explain that prophecy is superior to tongues. Tongues is a moving of the spirit, but tongues builds up the individual Prophecy builds up the church. Do not be children in your understanding, Paul says. One who speaks in tongues is having a spiritual experience, but it is very one-sided often. But the one who prophesies, that, that's what he wants us to chase after. James 3.16 kind of explains to us what had gotten out of order in the church in Corinth. James 3.16 says, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. So that's why the church in Corinth was in chaos because people were coming together, seeking their own needs and envying the gifts of others. Now, I wanted to say this. After I, I got done uh, with the study last week, I, I, I kind of leaned into um, edification over experience, right? That was the title of last week's teaching. Are we pursuing an experience when we gather together or are we pursuing 
edification? Are we here to have some emotional, feelings-driven experience so that we can say we've met with God? Or are we here to build one another up, to share truth, to lean on one another, to meet each other's needs? Um, and, and I think Paul made it obvious why we need to come together. But I, I feel like I need to provide this disclaimer. That doesn't mean if we pursue edification that we'll never experience God. I am not advocating for a dry religion. I am not advocating for an emotionless, uh, an emotionless, stoic uh, kind of faith. But what I, I think scripture is clear about is there's a far deeper experience with God than chasing a feeling, right? We can have a far deeper experience with God than having him be kind of uh, our emotional dealer, if you will, where we can build a life, where he builds a life, where we walk with him and in his spirit instead of chasing these momentary emotional highs. There will be emotion, right? It's like a marriage, There are times where you're like, man, I am so in love with you. And there's other times where you're like, why can't you just take out the trash? (laughs) The hamper is right there. Why is the shirt there? I tell my wife that all the time. (laughs) But God builds things that are lasting and meaningful See, there's a big difference between chasing after one night stands and building a life of trust and faithfulness and uh, just protection and caring with your spouse, right? There's a difference between chasing after a momentary drug-induced feeling of euphoria and the joy that God would use you As a man, maybe to protect and provide for your family. As a woman, to care and nurture for your family. One is momentary and fleeting, and it's ultimately destructive. I remember one night after I'd gotten saved, I'd been married for a little while. We we had had our first um, son, and he was three or four years old. And and my wife and I uh, and my son, we were on the ground, and we were just playing with one of his toys. And in that moment, it was just incredibly, it seems very simple, but it was so gratifying and fulfilling. And I thought, man, 10 years ago, I would never have imagined this bringing so much significance to my life. 10 years ago, I would have been out chasing that next high. But God had built something over many years that was far more meaningful than that momentary high could have ever provided. And that's the way God operates. And so when I talk about uh, edification over experience, it doesn't mean we don't experience God. It's just like when we experience God, it's far more deep and meaningful than a temporary emotional high. We want to see God move. We want to experience him. We want to know him more. We want to watch him work. We want to see him break chains of addiction. We want to see him free people from anxiety and depression and instill discipline and faithfulness. But that doesn't happen until we pursue love and desire 
to share his truth with others. So now, in light of that, Paul goes on. He got into the why, right? That's the why we gather together. Now he's going to talk about the how. If you look down in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 40, he kind of seals it all up and gives us really a, a good baseline for what we're going to be studying. He says, what, what should it look like when you all gather together in 1 Corinthians 14, 40? Let all things be done decently and in order. When you gather together, let everything be done decently and in order. Now, organized religion, when you hear that, what do you think of? Kind of cringe a little bit, right? And, and if, if we're defining organized religion as dry, empty, um, jumping through hoops, trying to earn God's favor, uh, trying to make up for the sins of yesterday, today, um, then yes, that's... We should cringe when we hear the term organized religion. But what's the alternative? Disorganized religion? If I said, hey, we're going to meet on Sunday and probably somewhere between like 7 a.m. and like 1 p.m., I don't know what time we're going to meet, but just show up and eventually we're going to have something for you. And maybe we'll have some people watching the kids in the back. Maybe not. Maybe we'll just let them run free in the yard and see uh, if we have like a Lord of the Flies situation out there. (laughs) But, But, you know, let's just let the spirit move. We wouldn't want that, right? There has to be some organization to when we gather together or else it's a little bit of chaos, isn't it? You know, if I came and I said, I haven't really prepared anything for you guys. I'm just gonna let the spirit work and see what he does and, and I, guys, I don't want that for you. You don't want me going off script. Now, don't get me wrong, I pray that the spirit of God would move. I prepare and then say, God, do with it what you want. So we do allow space for the spirit to move, but we've been called to teach this. So organization is not a bad thing. Doing things decently, that word means with grace and dignity, doing things properly. It's the same word that Paul uses in Romans 13, 13. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry or drunkenness. So that's the opposite of it. You guys ever been around a drunk person and you're stone sober? You're like, man, I wish I could videotape you right now and give it to you so that you can look back at it. Trust me, I've been there before. Paul says, not like that, not out of order, not in lewdness and lust, but walk properly. It reminds me of the conversation I had when my kids were young and we're going over to a friend's house. Please, just be normal, (laughs) be decent. Order, the word order means in sequence or succession. So we're talking about doing things properly and in, where, where people can grow and hear God's word and there isn't chaos and confusion. That's what Paul is concerned about. So we get a hint of, again, what was going on in Corinth. Look at verse 26. He begins to describe their gatherings. He says, how is it then, brethren, Whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm or a song. 
One has a teaching, one has a tongue, one has a revelation, one has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. So now we're getting a little window into what the early church gatherings look like. Someone might bring a song to sing, a praise to God. Someone else might bring a word of instruction, another a revelation or a prophecy, another an interpretation of tongue. But what we do see is People weren't just spectators. They were taking part in the service. They were participants. It looked much more, well, what Paul's referring to now, looked much more like our Wednesday nights. That's a plug for you to join us Wednesday nights. Than it does necessarily our, our Sunday mornings. Now that may cause you to wonder, well, why don't our Sunday mornings look that way then? If this is the blueprint for how we should gather, why do we have one guy preaching and teaching while we all listen? Guys, this isn't a blueprint for every service. This is a description of one of the elements of the early church. We have to understand the difference between when the Bible is being prescriptive and descriptive, and Paul is describing what one element of the early church gatherings look like. Remember, Paul encouraged young Timothy in 2 Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Paul at one time taught a message so late into the night that a young man fell out the window and died and then was resurrected. Paul has already said some have been given the role as pastor and teacher and preacher. There were times of formal Bible reading, formal Bible teaching, corporate singing, corporate prayer, but there was also time for spontaneous moves of the Spirit, Spirit-led discussions, and that's why on Wednesday nights we've kind of changed the format a little bit and we've made it more uh, uh, discussion-based. Again, if you haven't been, check it out. Here's the point of all of this. Whether it's our Sunday morning service where we're going through the word of God line by line, verse by verse, or it's our Wednesday evening service and we have more of an opportunity to share, whether it's after the Sunday morning message and we're gathering together outside, talking with one another, praying with one another, all of that should be done to build one another up. Those small groups, those men's and women's Bible studies, it's never an opportunity to prove how much we know. It's never an opportunity to prove how much scripture we have memorized or to make a, a name for ourselves. Our question as we enter those groups should be, how can I help build up my brothers and And sisters, that's what Paul has been just reminding us of over and over again. When we participate, we should be looking to build one another up. Are we all good with that? We're okay with that? If you disagree, raise your hand. I mean, that's that's pretty plain, okay? We've got one person disagreeing. Look at verse 27. (laughs) If anyone speaks in a tongue... Let there be two or at most three, each in turn, 
and let one interpret. So now he's giving us a framework of how we participate within a service. If anyone comes in with a tongue, let there be two that share in a tongue, maybe three at most, and then let someone interpret that tongue. He's already set the the standard for that. If there's going to be tongues in church, there needs to be interpretation of tongues, or else the body isn't built up because nobody knows what you're saying, and an unbeliever will come in and hear tongues and think, hey, you're crazy. You've lost your mind. So Paul says, let there be an interpretation. Let two or or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints." So again, another picture into what was off in the church in Corinth. Paul says, let two or three speak in tongues. What was probably happening at their service? And maybe I was a part of these gatherings where everybody would come together and everyone is speaking in tongues at the same time. Maybe not even tongues. Maybe everybody comes together and you have an individual and they say, one, two, three, go, and everybody starts praying at the same time. That's interesting to me when Paul is so clear about how the order of the service should look. Everyone's speaking in turn, because if everyone is speaking at once, there's no understanding, there's no edification, it's just noise. That's pretty practical, isn't it? And that embodies this entire chapter. Practical ministry with the tongue must come an interpretation. And if there's no interpretation, what does Paul say to that individual speaking in tongues? Oh, this is important. He says, keep silent. We can't miss this. Because that tells us that the speaker has control over his tongue. Again, having grown up a little bit in a charismatic church, a lot of times it was about the spirit moving and the individual being out of control, being slain in the spirit, having no control over what's coming out of their mouth or when it's coming out of their mouth. And Paul says very plainly, if there's no interpretation, stop. That implies that there is self-control when it comes to the operation of the spirits. Guys, what is the last fruit of the spirit? Self-control. One of the actual evidences of the Holy Spirit moving is that we have self-control. It worries me a little bit when we treat the spirit as some unseen force that dominates a person's decision-making and we lose complete control because there is another spirit like that and it isn't the Holy Spirit. We see that spirit, that evil spirit, moving in individuals in the New Testament and causing them to jump into fires, causing them to cut themselves. But God has always invited mankind into a relationship with him to share in his work. Now, I want the spirit of God moving in me. I want the person of the Spirit directing me and guiding me, but there will always be a choice in it. And I don't understand, and I I get 
I'll, I'll stop here, but how many, I, I don't understand how many have embraced and out of control, out of order, and quite frankly, embarrassing kind of worship service that the, it's just, it's beyond me. And I think it's a black eye to Christianity when witnessed by an unbelieving world. Now, we don't do what we do for for unbelievers, but we are called to be obedient to God's word. Then Paul says, again, when dealing with prophecy, have two or three prophets speak at once and then let others judge their words. Just because someone comes in and says, I have a word from the Lord, doesn't automatically mean it is a word from the Lord, right? Just because someone says, thus saith the Lord, doesn't mean they have a word from the Lord. I've shared this before. My, my parents had a friend who, he went to a woman in their college group and said, God told me you're gonna be my wife. And she said, when God tells me, then we'll get married. (laughs) They never got married. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. 1 John 4, 4, the Apostle John writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Hold on to that for a second. Because that is what is under attack. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus in Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. When someone claims a word, and they say that, they say that they're sharing from the mouth of God, It is our responsibility to examine what? Our feelings? Do I feel like this is true? No, we go to God's word. Isn't that what the Bereans did? We searched the scriptures. Anything I'm saying, we need to be good students and go back and look. We have the full revelation of God right here and we have to see if what is being said is true. That's what matters. And that's what Paul says. If someone comes in with a prophecy and they have a word for the church and they have a word for the body, it has to match up with this. And man, if we would have just followed that direction, think about how many false religions would have been dead on arrival when Joseph Smith said, you know what? Let me add something to this. If people would have just said, well, let's, hold on a second. Do not add or subtract anything. Oh, Jesus is a created being and he's the brother of Satan. Wait a second. Let's double check this. Do you notice every false religion is an attack on the deity of Jesus Christ? That's why the apostle John says, if the spirit, if it's a word, 
from God, and then it will testify that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, and he is the Jesus Christ of Scripture. But think about, we, we have the full revelation of Scripture before us. Think about the importance that this, uh, this process played in the early church to guard what was coming in. So often, Paul had warned Timothy, watch out for false doctrine. People coming in and adding things to the gospel. Oh yeah, you can be a follower of Jesus, but you have to become circumcised. You have to follow the Mosaic law, and then you can be saved. They would add works to the righteousness of Christ. Or you had Gnostics saying that, Everything that's material is evil, but everything that's spiritual is good. You had all of these outside ideas trying to permeate the church, and Paul was saying, guard the truth. 1 Timothy 1.3, Paul writes to young pastor Timothy, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doc- doctrine nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. We have a slide up for you. This is the, the ocean that Paul traveled through to get to the different, um, his different missionary stops. 1 Timothy 6.3, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, see, Paul's teachings are not his own ideas, are they? He's not some philosopher that is like, hey, I got, I got some great stuff for you. He's just reciting, teaching, explaining all that Jesus has already said. Even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, if they do not consent to wholesome words, to the doctrine which accords with godliness, then he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy and strife and reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of truth who suppose that godliness is is a means of gain from such withdraw yourselves. See, this judgment of prophecy, it was essential in protecting the purity of the teaching within the church. And now we have the full counsel of God's word. And so we can go back and say, is what is being shared as if it's coming from God, actually from God? So, are we all on the same page? We're all okay. All right, take a look at verse 34. Yesterday, or yesterday, last Sunday, after worship, Lisa and, and Karsten were talking. And I said, get it in now. <laughs> because big changes are coming. So look, and it's interesting, we're all okay, most of us are okay with everything that came before this, right? But now here we have verse 34. <sighs> Becky, would you read this one for me? <laughs> Let your women 
keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or did the word of God come originally from you, or was it you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord." But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. When I finished, when I was studying for last week's message, I had a just temptation to just kind of mention this in passing and say, okay, guys, do your own study and research and and we'll just move into chapter 15. But that's just not fair, is it? We are to teach God's word line by line, verse by verse. So what do we do with this? We were okay with everything leading up to it. What do we do with it? Let your women keep silent in the churches. I know what we wanna do with it, One of probably three things. One, we just want to ignore it. Or we want to explain it away. It was just cultural. Women were out of control at that time. (laughs) Or we even want to build a church on it. Utter silence. And and, and it's not as common today as it was, but that is a, a popularly held view Guys, it's important to understand that when we approach scripture, especially things that are difficult for us, we carry in belief bias, don't we? You guys all know what belief bias is, right? We gravitate towards things and information that we want to believe is true. We all do it. When we're surfing the news and we're reading stories and and reports, things that we want to be true, we often gravitate towards that information. And things that we don't want to be true, we often reject that information. But guys, we don't have the freedom to do that if we're followers of Jesus Christ. We have to ask, no, not how does this make me feel, but what is God actually saying? That's the only thing that matters. And I encourage you, Mike Winger, he's a Calvary pastor. He's done just a a monumental amount of work, um, not just on this, but uh, on head coverings and women in ministry. And and I encourage you, if you you want to dig deeper into that, that you can. But he approaches his ministry as thinking biblically biblically, and that's the question he asks. If I throw off all my preconceived ideas and the culture and what the culture is pressing in on us, what is the Bible actually saying? Because that's the only thing that matters. If in the beginning was God, and God created, and what he created was good, and that leads us to this. Is it true? So, let's, let's try to unpack it a little bit. There are a number of different interpretations, but what I found is each view really falls into one of two categories. Either the complementarian category, or the complementarian view, or the egalitarian view. 
No, complementarian, and I'm going to try to distill this down into the most basic definition. It, it, that view teaches, that, or I, I shouldn't even say teaches, that view thinks Scripture teaches men and women have differing roles in the family, in the church, but those roles complement one another. So an easy way to remember it is different roles equal value. Partners in crime. (laughs) Differing roles, but equal worth, equal value. One is not more important than the other. We're just equipped differently, created differently, um, and used differently by God, but we work together as a team. That's complementarian, um, as basic as I can describe it. Egalitarian is a little bit different. That view believes that scripture teaches there is no real gender distinctions. Now, don't get me wrong, it's not our modern day. Now, maybe it goes that far, where gender is just a social con- construct. Not, uh, it, we may be moving in that direction in some egalitarian circles, but the idea is that when it comes to men and women, there is no gender distinction. Men and women are interchangeable when it comes to functional roles within leadership and within the family. Does that make sense? So, complementarian, different roles, equal worth. Egalitarian, interchangeable, right? Women can be pastors. Um, Obviously, women can speak in church. That's the egalitarian view. And depending on what you already believe will determine what you do with the scripture, right? So some claim, and this is from the egalitarian side, some claim that this should not even be in scripture at all. And their claim is that when you look at the ancient documents, the, the ancient letters that we have available to us, that this verse appears in different places in 1 Corinthians. Not that it doesn't appear, just that in certain manuscripts they appear, Paul's words here are either before chapter 14 or after chapter 14, but here's what's interesting. Not one manuscript removes those verses. So that just seems to be on shaky ground, doesn't it? Every manuscript we have of Corinthians includes Paul's words about women keeping silent in the church. Others claim that Paul is quoting a common phrase in Corinthian culture, which is interesting too, because there's, again, not a whole lot of evidence supporting that. We don't see that phrase in Corinthian literature. We see forms of it, but it's really a stretch. But then, why does he say that and he does nothing to refute it? Why would he just quote the Corinthians and not do anything with it? Then there's the education view, that women are singled out not because of their gender, but because they happen to be more likely to cause some kind of disruption in the service because of that culture. But guys, Greco-Roman men and women both had basic educations. And what was being taught in the church? God's word. And guess what? This church was a baby church, right? Everyone was starting from ground zero. When it came to education in the church, everyone was on equal footing. 
In verse 33, if it was just something going on in the church in Corinth, what does Paul say in verse 33? To all the churches of the saints. Education isn't the issue here. Paul tells us what the issue is. There's a bad word in there, isn't there? What's that word? Submission. It's the issue of submission. So here's a view from the complementarian side that I mentioned. The utter silence view. Is that what we do with it? Should women never speak in church? They would claim to hold the literal view. We are reading scripture literally. Guys, that's what we're all trying to do. Sometimes I think we confuse literal with lazy. Oh, I want to read it literally. Oh, so you want to read it out of context, without historical context, just so you can move on and not do the deep digging and the deep work that needs to be done on difficult passages. Okay, let's, let's take the literal view. Jesus said, cut your hand off if it causes you to sin. Pluck your eye out if it causes you to sin. Hate your mother and your father. Now, there's certain passages that we need to pause and unpack a little bit. It doesn't mean we don't take plain things and make them the main things, right? But let's pause for a second and ask, okay, what, does that matter? There's a, some of you, it rubs you the wrong way because um, of certain personal issues. Others, it rubs you the wrong way because you're like, that doesn't really coincide with the beating heart of Scripture, women keeping silent. If you know your Bibles, you know that the Bible is radical when it comes to women's rights, in a good, women's rights in a good way. That it was way ahead of its time in the treatment and honoring and care of women. So we hear it and we wonder, okay, well, what is Paul saying? Well, the Greek word that Paul uses, keep silent, is the same thing that he used, word that he used back in verse 28. If you share a tongue and it's not interpreted, you should keep silent. Does that mean that that guy should shut up and not say a word for the rest of his life? <laughs> Whenever he's in church, he can no longer speak again. Now that word keep silent is often used when it's referring to a particular kind of speech. So let's, again, what does scripture teach us about women speaking in church? 1 Corinthians 11. What, what, did Paul, what did Pastor John already deal with? Paul encouraging women to prophesy and pray publicly during church gatherings. All right, women, you can pray and prophesy. Acts 2. We read that the Spirit of God fell on the disciples And when we say disciples, not just the 11, we're talking about all those who are following Jesus in Jerusalem and the Spirit of God, probably over 500 uh, men and women gathered in the upper room. The Spirit of God fell on them and they began to prophesy. And when Peter describes what happened during that time, some may say, well, that was just the men. Just the men were prophesying together. Well, Peter quotes Joel 2 in Acts chapter 2 when he says, this is what is happening. This is what you are all seeing. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall see dream dreams. What do you know about Philip's daughters? They were prophets. 
in the New Testament. When Apollos was struggling to understand the fullness of the gospel, right? He was teaching, um, he had a love for God, a love for his word, but he hadn't received the full gospel. Who came alongside him and taught him about salvation through Jesus? It was Priscilla and Aquila. And I'm gonna stop with this one here. In Luke chapter two, verse 36, there's a woman who gets lost in the Christmas story. Her name is Anna. And in Luke 2.36, there was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old, and she had lived with her husband for seven years after her marriage. And after those seven years, her husband passed away. We read, and then she was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying, coming up to them at that very moment, She gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So we have hints of women operating within the confines of church gatherings. But what, so what do we do with it? What's, what's left to do with it? So here's, again, we can disagree about that, about this, and that's okay, but I believe that scripture clearly teaches a complementary view of men and women. And I have to bring you back for the time that we have left, back to Genesis. Let's ask ourselves, what does the Bible say about men and women? I believe it says we're equal, but we're different. Because if you begin in Genesis 1, after a good God created a good world, the fall hasn't happened yet, and in, first Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we read that God said, let who? Let us. So we already see the Holy Spirit, the Son, and the Father working together in creation Then God said, let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, what? Male and female. It's interesting that at Every statement of truth starting from the beginning, those statements of truth are under attack. In beginning God, oh, there is no God. In the beginning God created, oh, there's a God, but he's not interested in what's going on here. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and it was good. God, there is a creator, creator God, but look at all the evil in the world. What kind of God is he? In the beginning God created heavens and the earth, and man and woman. Oh, no, there's no gender. That attack is nothing new. So already we have this hint that God made male and female. Why make male and female if they weren't going to be different? Why not just make a person? Now, Genesis 2.15, this fleshes this idea out even more. Then the Lord God took the man He put him in the Garden of Eden 
So now we're going back again to the man has, man's been created, woman hasn't been created yet. This is just an expansion of Genesis chapter one. So the Lord God took the man, he put him in the garden of Eden to do what? To tend and to keep it. Now look at verse 18. And the Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And now some of you women already, you're like a helper. He definitely needs help, but I'm more than a helper. Oh man, you don't understand that word. That word helper, do a a word study on it. It's the same word that David uses to describe God. Lord is my help in time of trial. It is the same word that's used when some soldier comes to the aid of another in battle. That moves me a little bit because that describes my wife. One soldier coming alongside another in the midst of battle. That's the kind of helper that God gives to man. Verse 19, out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the the field. But for Adam, as he saw these animals coming before him and he's seeing an animal with a, a female counterpart, what does Adam realize? There was not a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs. Where's your rib? It's in your side. He took a rib from Adam's side, closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man took a rib from his side, not something above him, not something below him, from his side, a partner, a helper. And in verse 24 of chapter two, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. I'm gonna lean into this because I think it's vital today that we understand this. Before the fall, man and wife, woman and man, they were a team of equals with different responsibilities. Guys, gender is a good thing. Our differences, they're wonderful. They should be celebrated. Our roles are God-ordained. Adam was made first, and he was called to lead. And the reason I think that we're uncomfortable with that sometimes is we have a really weird word of what leader, a really weird view of what leadership is. We have a twisted worldly view of what it means to pastor or lead. We think, okay, that's the boss, That's a CEO. Why can't women be the CEO? I don't think we understand leadership then. Because leadership in scripture is the one to sacrifice first. The one to lay down their life first. The one to serve first. Leadership is servanthood. And we're like, oh, why is it this way? 
It's oppressive. That's, that's what the world says today when we look at traditional biblical values, right? It used to be, oh, that's just traditional, right? That's just kind of archaic. Now we're progressive. Now we, you know, believe the right thing, but it's no longer just traditional anymore. They look at the Bible and they say that's oppressive. That's what's wrong with the world. That plays into the patriarchy, doesn't it? But what do we see before the fall? Adam tending, protecting. Eve comes alongside. She's his support, his help, his encouragement. And one role wasn't more important than the other. But then what happened? Genesis 3 happened. And in Genesis 3, the serpent comes along and tempts Eve. And we think that temptation was simply, oh, I desire the fruit, right? But we see the temptation was far more than that. The temptation was to take Adam's place as leader, right? What's Adam doing while this was going on? Watching. Okay, whatever you want to do. He's passive. And we see the roles now flipped. And Eve takes of the fruit and she eats and then she gives to her husband. Okay. Now I've heard Paul says that when he talks about, and again, if you, if you get a chance, look at, listen to Pastor John's teaching on 1 Corinthians chapter 11 because it deals with the head coverings and Christ is the head of man, man is the head of woman. Um, but Paul also says if you look back at Genesis, he's always calling back to the Genesis story. If you look at the Genesis story, who was deceived by the serpent? He says, woman. But I don't think that's a derogatory statement because think about this. Who was the woman deceived by? A supernatural being who was in the presence of God because of his own pride, rebelled, is more clever than mankind, has been uh, the father of lies and manipulation his entire life. She was manipulated and deceived by that supernatural being, right? Who is man deceived by? Okay. It's a pretty lady. (laughs) I mean, you understand what I'm saying, right? Man was deceived by woman. The the roles flipped. But who does God call out to in chapter three, verse nine? When God, God knows what has happened. Who does he call out to? Who does he hold responsible? Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. That is not a leader. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to me. She gave me the tree and I ate it. That is not leadership. Leadership is taking the burden of going first, and it is a burden. It's so easy to say, oh, I want the role of pastor. Guys, follow a day in the life of Pastor John and I. 
It is not one of bonbons and soap operas. And I'm not trying to be whiny like, oh, woe is me. No, but leadership, true, godly, Christ-like leadership is laying down your life daily. It's your needs first. That's leadership. And then being willing to accept the, re- the responsibility of leading. You ever have, have that argument? Not even an argument, but you're like, where are we going to eat tonight? I don't know, wherever you want to eat. I know what that means. Because if I pick something that's not good, guess whose fault it is? It's mine. So it's really, I don't want to be responsible for making a bad decision. Not, not, you understand what I'm saying. But that's true leadership, is I will, I will provide for and protect and lay down my life, and I will take responsibility for those actions. Paul blames the fall of humanity on, in Romans 5, on Adam. He was called to lead, he bears the responsibility. In Genesis 3.16, to the woman He said, I will greatly, this is God speaking, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. Guys, that's not a good desire. Literally, that is, your desire will be for the role of your husband. That word desire is the same uh, word that uh, scripture uses to describe sin waits at your door desiring to destroy you. So God knows what's ahead. And the man, he shall what? It's no longer Christ honoring, Christ reflecting self-sacrificial love, it's you will do what I say. That's the perversion of sin that we see in the world today. He shall rule over you. Verse 17, then to Adam, he said, because you have not heeded the voice, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, you not saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for which for your sake In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So God looks down the corridor of time and he sees the consequences of the fall that women will desire the role of men and men will seek to rule over women and that is not what God intended. That is not good. The gender wars. You know, one thing I've really been trying to wrap my mind around is Satan is described as an angel of what? light. And someone made a point the other day, I'm like, that is so true. He's an angel of light, which means he is an angel. Is it good light? Light, Light's hope, isn't it? Light, light is life. Light is um, true Christ. The light of Christ is, is light in the darkness, right? But Satan's light, the, he is the prince of darkness. That's the light of false hope. It's, it's hope, he presents it as hope, but it's false hope. It's false promises. And you know what I've been seeing? Satan is really good at pointing out the ills of this world that he is definitely responsible for, but then he offers his solution for it. Have men done just terrible things 
to women over history. Absolutely. There's evidence of that, right? So what's Satan's way of fixing it? Now, it was because of the patriarchy. It's because of that leadership role that men took. So let's replace it with, some of you guys were around when this started, feminism, right? And what do we have today? See, feminism, that's the answer to all the evils done to women. Let's flip the roles. But guys, the roles were never the problem. Our differences, that was never the problem. It's sin. It's sin in the lives of men and women looking at the roles and saying that that's the problem. It's like building a car, throwing away the blueprints, not following any of the blueprints, and trying to build a car and then starting the engine. It doesn't start and you're like, this car is terrible. No, you didn't follow the directions. There's a reason it doesn't work. Guys, I I know we're kind of going way back into scripture, but I bring that all up for this reason. God's design for gender and for marriage and for church leadership, it's good. Has it been used for ill? Absolutely. That doesn't mean that God's design for it is bad. It means we're bad. It's good when both men and women share the mind of Christ. As men, we're to lay our lives down for our wives. That's true leadership. And as women, women are called to allow their husband to lead just as Jesus yields to the will of the Father. Does that mean Jesus is less important than God? No, of course not. So I say all that because I think that's what Paul is dealing with here. He's dealing with church leadership. Remember, context. What is, what is this following? Judging whether tongues or prophecies, words that are brought into the church, should be accepted as God's truth, and the church should be built on those truths. We're dealing with governance here. And remember, he's dealing with church governance in a culture where religion and spirituality had a decidedly female voice whose temple was central in Corinth, the goddess Aphrodite. The temple priests were women. The spiritual leaders were women. Women. The majority of the temple prostitutes were women. Spirituality and religion in Corinth had a decidedly female voice and tone. And that got carried into the church. And the church in Corinth looked more like Corinth than they looked like children of God. And that's what Paul is dealing with. And that's the the tendency of every church. Hey, it's working in the world. Let's cut and paste it and put it in the church. The big concert venues, that's drawing a crowd in in the world. Let's make the church look that way. But that's the battle we face. We're not to adopt secular methods to achieve spiritual results. We are to abide by God's word. And that's the reason. We can disagree with that. That's about that. That's fine. If, if you want to talk more about that, I'd be happy to. But when you look at God's word, I think there's a decidedly clear direction for men and women in the family and church leadership. And it brings glory to God. I will make them in my image. 
male and female, I will make them. And when we're both walking in the spirit of God, there's something about a relationship between a husband and a wife that honors God and tells his story. And all that, just ask, do we trust God's order? Do we trust his design? Or has the culture pushed a new way of thinking, a false hope into the church today? God has to be our final authority. Wherever you fall, ultimately fall on this side. God, I just want to know what you're saying because I know it's your word that brings truth and life and meaning and purpose.